0: You're listening to What Does the Word Say? a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine the four characteristics of special revelation, that is the Bible. We introduce the acrostic snack, S-N-A-C. And last time we examined the S, which stands for sufficiency. We explained that the Bible provides sufficient revelation for salvation and for life, so that a person who has been born again has all that he or she needs to be saved and to live a life that's pleasing to God. The next characteristic described by Snack is necessity. So, Dr. Spencer, what do we want to say about the necessity of special revelation?
1: We first want to remind our listeners that the Bible is not necessary to know that God exists and to know something of His power and glory. As we noted last time, general revelation is sufficient for that purpose and is available to everyone, so no one has an excuse for not seeking God, as the Apostle Paul argues in Romans 1. But the Bible's revelation is absolutely necessary for salvation and to live a life pleasing to God. Let's talk about salvation first. In Luke 10, we read a marvelous account of Jesus having fellowship with some of his disciples as he was on his way to Jerusalem, where he knew that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of the Jewish and Roman authorities and crucified for the sins of his people. On the way, he stopped at the home of his friend Martha in Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. Martha was the sister of Mary and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. While Martha was distracted with the preparations for dinner, Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to him. And at one point, Martha came to them, clearly upset that Mary wasn't helping, and said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus' reply is very important. He said, quote, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her." His point is clear. We must do all sorts of things in this life, including preparing dinner. But there's only one thing that is truly needful. Life is short, and eternity never ends. So the only really essential thing in this life is to make sure that we are saved and will spend
0: eternity in heaven rather than hell. All right, given that our eternal destiny is at stake— why then is the bible necessary for salvation
1: it's necessary because as peter said about jesus christ in acts four twelve, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved and the bible is the only place we are told what we need to know about jesus christ and his work we can know from extra-biblical sources of course that the person jesus christ lived as we noted in session 21 But the Bible is the only place we're told about the real meaning and significance of the person, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It is the only place that tells us that Jesus was not just a man, but was also God incarnate. It is the only place that we are told he lived a perfect, sinless life to fulfill the law and then offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And it is the only place where we're told... That if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we will be saved, as Paul wrote in Romans ten verse nine If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To say that Jesus is Lord, however, requires that we understand that he is the unique God man and that he is the Creator and Lord of the universe. And to believe that God raised him from the dead is a partial statement, but in the context of the whole passage, Paul is clearly referring to all of Christ's saving work, his perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection.
0: The Apostle Paul also notes the necessity of knowing the truth about Jesus Christ. A bit later in Romans 10, in verses 13 and 14, he writes, "...everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And of course, it's the gospel message of Jesus Christ that we are to preach.
1: It is this message that is necessary for salvation. And the Bible is our only infallible source of knowledge. Knowledge about our own sinful nature, knowledge about God, and most importantly, knowledge about the only Savior and Lord,
0: Jesus Christ. Now, many people are disturbed by the exclusive nature of that claim. They think that people who sincerely hold to other beliefs will also be saved, and therefore it's entirely possible to be saved without hearing and believing the gospel. Uh, How would you respond to that statement? I'd respond first by pointing out a clear difference
1: between biblical Christianity and all other religions. Christianity is the only religion that tells us the truth, namely that we are all sinful, deserving of God's wrath, and unable to save ourselves. We need God to do something, or we will certainly be lost. Every other purported way of salvation is based on man's effort. We must do something to earn heaven. But that's impossible. We're sinners and cannot do anything to earn heaven. Sin incurs guilt, which is a debt that must be paid. If we were able to stop sinning completely, we could stop incurring further guilt. But our guilt for our previous sins would still be there the penalty would still have to be paid. And of course, no one ever completely stops sinning
0: in this life either. I think many people believe that their good deeds and bad deeds will be put on a balanced scale. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad, they'll make it into heaven.
1: That certainly is a common view, but it's wrong for two reasons. First, God's standard is perfection, and he judges our motives and thoughts as well as our deeds. Since nothing we ever do is perfect, we have no good deeds to balance the bad. And second, the point I was just trying to make is that every sin must be punished. And God has decreed that the payment must be a blood sacrifice. God told Moses in Leviticus 17 verse 11 that, quote, "...the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life." I suspect most modern people consider that idea somewhat barbaric. I'm quite sure that's true, but we need to come to grips with just how serious sin is. It is cosmic rebellion, and it must be atoned for. We recoil naturally from blood, partly because we're removed from the need to kill and prepare our own meat, but also partly because we intuitively understand that blood represents life. The fact that blood is required to atone for sin shows just how serious the problem really is. God
0: cannot simply wink at sin. I'm sure that some would object and point out that we are called to forgive others, so why can't God do the same? God cannot forgive sin without the penalty being paid because he's the
1: judge of the universe. If I steal from someone who happens to be a judge, he can forgive me on a personal level, But if the case comes before his court and I'm found guilty of the crime, as judge, he cannot simply say that he forgives me. Justice demands that I be given some form of punishment, and he must abide by the laws of the state and sentence me appropriately. As judge of the universe, God must do what is just and right according to his own laws. And the just and right penalty for breaking any of God's laws is death, eternal death. But, praise God, he paid the penalty for us. In what is probably the most famous of all Bible verses, John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we must ask, why did God have to give his Son? Which refers, of course, to his death on the cross. The answer is that the debt must be paid. Justice must be served. Either we must pay the debt or it must be paid for us. But we're not capable of paying the debt eternity in hell will not fully do it so god chose to pay it for us no other religion truly understands the need for an atoning sacrifice to pay the infinite penalty for our sins
0: and certainly no other religion reveals the truth that god has shown his incomparable love by atoning for our sins himself it's humbling and amazing to think about god loving wretched sinners like us enough to punish his own eternal Son instead of us, yeah, it's absolutely mind-boggling, but there's a flip side
1: to this amazing love to reject this gracious offer of God is terrible sin. People reject the offer because they don't want to acknowledge that they're sinners worthy of punishment, and they don't want to acknowledge that God is the supreme Lord of the universe, but to reject this gracious offer is to show contempt for God's grace. It is to call him a liar, as John writes in 1 John 5.10, Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And that's why, if you go on in John chapter 3 and look at the next two verses, 17 and 18, you read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only
0: Son. I remember one of our esteemed senators recently grilling a Christian nominee for public office because he had written something about people who didn't believe in Christ being condemned already. I remember that questioning
1: too. Apparently that senator doesn't know that our Constitution expressly forbids any religious test for holding public office. But returning to the topic of the necessity of the Bible for salvation, given the fact that God has decreed that there is only one way of salvation, and given the fact that the Bible is the only place where we learn of
0: Christ's work of redemption, the Bible is absolutely essential for salvation. There's an obvious question I suspect some of our listeners are asking at this point. Since we must know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ to be saved— What about people who lived prior to Christ? How were they able to be saved?
1: Well, salvation was available to the people who lived prior to Christ on the same basis it's available to us today, by faith in Christ. We look back on Christ and his completed work, but they were saved by looking forward to the promised Messiah. Remember that the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christos, from which we get our word Christ, both mean anointed one. We spoke about the progressive nature of Revelation in Session 6. We noted then that God gave the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first or original version of the gospel message, to Adam and Eve right after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, we read that God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will
0: crush your head and you will strike his heel. And as the term progressive implies... Over time, God revealed more and more about this Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. That's true. And those whom God enabled
1: by regeneration, repented of their sins, placed their trust in the promises made to them, and lived their lives in humble, albeit imperfect, obedience to please God. In Hebrews 11, we're told about a number of great Old Testament believers, and in verse 13 we read that these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. In other words, they knew that they had an eternal home, and they were looking forward to it. Their focus was not on this life, but on the life to come. And they fully
0: trusted in God's promise to provide a Savior. And God is always faithful to keep his promises. You mentioned that the Bible is also necessary for us to live in a way that is pleasing to God, but many people today think that they are pleasing God by simply doing what they think is right. What would you say to those people?
1: If they are not explicitly seeking to know and do God's will in His way for His glory, then He is not pleased with them, even if and when what they do is in itself good We must remember the creator-creature distinction. God alone has the authority to tell us what is right and wrong. We need to remember what I said in session 23 when we discussed the sufficiency of the Bible. Our consciences can be desensitized by sin, and they can also be corrupted by our own reason when it operates independently. It is not our place to decide what is sin and what isn't sin. That's God's prerogative alone. Our consciences must be informed by the Word of God. Our reason is a wonderful tool, and we must use it to understand and apply God's Word. But our reason can also be a terrible enemy, especially when
0: we allow it to be influenced by Satan and the world. What you're saying reminds me very much of Martin Luther. He's famous for his stand at the Diet of Worms, of course, when he was commanded to recant his teachings and faced possible death if he refused. He said... Quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me amen. Mm-hmm. I
1: find it interesting that when people cite that statement, they often omit the first part and simply quote the part that says. It is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. But Luther had it completely right. It is only unsafe to go against conscience if our conscience is captive to the word of God. The Bible must be our ultimate authority. If I find myself disagreeing with something I've read in God's word, I must first be sure that I'm understanding it correctly. But if I'm understanding it correctly and still find myself disagreeing with it, then I must change.
0: I am wrong. Now, at this point, it seems that you've started to speak about a different attribute of the Word of God, its authority. You're right. I've sort of
1: moved into that territory, but it's impossible to treat these things completely independently. When we say the Bible is necessary for salvation and to live a life pleasing to God, we have to presuppose its authority. It obviously can't be necessary if it has no
0: authority to speak on these topics. Yeah, that makes sense. So if we simply assume for the moment that the Bible does have authority, can you give us an example of how to apply this idea that the Bible must define what is right? There are a number
1: of important and current issues in the church where the authority of Scripture to define what is right is of critical importance. For example, many professing Christians today have given up on the idea of eternal hell. They will either say that it doesn't exist at all or that it isn't eternal. The basic rationale for believing either one of these two theses always boils down to human reason saying that it's somehow not fair. There is no cogent biblical argument in favor of either of these positions. I don't want to get into detail now because our subject is the necessity of the Bible, but let me give a quick summary of a couple of arguments. In Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32, Jesus told us about the day of judgment, when he will come to judge all people. He said that, quote, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He then goes on to describe the judgment, and with regard to those who have rejected Him, He says, in verse 41, quote, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, unquote. And then again, in verse 46, quote, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In all three places where the word eternal is used in the NIV translation of these verses, the Greek word is "aionios," which means eternal or without beginning or end. We could cite other evidence, but the Bible could not be more clear about the
0: eternal nature of both heaven and hell. And for those of us looking forward to heaven, that's a wonderful thought. But we're out of time today. So are we done with examining the necessity of the Bible that is special revelation?
1: We are. But I'd like to make a summary statement, I think. The Bible is necessary for living a life pleasing to God precisely because it is God alone who has authority to say what is sinful and also to tell us how we
0: are to worship Him. Very well. That concludes this session, but I want to remind our listeners to email their questions and comments to whatdoesthewordsay.org. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue speaking about the characteristics of the Bible, and we hope you'll join us.